We're grateful to have family with us today and grateful for uh, the opportunity to have our daughters Tamara and Kristen sing this morning. Tamara is music minister at, at Chandler Baptist Church in Liberty, Missouri, so it's not very often she can be here. And Kristen is a mental health therapist in, living in North Carolina and obviously can't get here very often, so it's a blessing for us. And uh, may I just say, uh, it is a blessing after paying for voice lessons and piano lessons and, <laughs> and college tuition. It's, it's wonderful to get a payback once in a while. And uh, from a very selfish point of view, I'm grateful. And uh, uh, thank you both very much. Well, this morning, we're uh, launching a sermon series, uh, Hoarders Anonymous, How Much is Enough and What's It All About?, uh, the uh, flyers went out, and we hope that you will use these. There are more on the Narthex Welcome Center table, and maybe invite guests to come and, and hear as we struggle with these issues of how much is enough and, and what's it all about and the accumulation of things and all of, that, all of that. And we hope that you will take seriously this sermon series that we'll be doing in November uh, as we think about uh, the whole issue of hoarding and being acknowledging... Uh, uh, our, our addiction to things. And so pray with me as, as I bring the messages and uh, invite people to share in the, the conversation that we have going on. Now, before I read the text for this morning, which is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, I would like to invite us to a time of prayer. So I invite you to bow your heads and let's enter into a time of meditation, to be in God's presence, to soak up His goodness, to confess sin, to pray for people we're concerned about, or to just experience God in these moments, and then I'll lead us in family prayer. Loving and merciful Heavenly Father, we bless your name for all of your goodness. Thank you for every one of life's gifts, for the gift of life itself, for every breath that we draw, for every blessing of family and church and, and the fellowship of believers and, and uh, the strength to work and to serve you, for the gift of all the saints who've gone before us and for being part of a a global communion. And we pray today on behalf of the persecuted church all over the earth, for those who uh, do not enjoy religious liberty, that you might bless them and protect them. And to that end, we pray that you'll bless all of our mission partners around the earth. And we pray for peace in the world with justice, that you might care for our military personnel scattered far and wide and all their families, that you would keep them safe and bless them. We ask, Lord, that you bless the sick of our congregation, those who are struggling with mental health, those who are struggling with addictions. We pray for those who are dealing with a family crisis, job loss. We pray for those who are struggling with grief through the death of loved ones or life transitions. We pray that you would uh, gather up all of these concerns in your arms of love and that you would somehow hold us close and Minister to us deeply and be our, 
our guide and our rock and, and just pour out grace upon each one of us. We need you so desperately in our brokenness, our sin, and our doubts and our fears. We thank you that your love is real. We pray that you'll guide us as we think together about stuff, about possessions, and about a right relationship with you and with our possessions. And we pray that you'll help us to be open to truth and that your light of the Holy Spirit might shine upon Scripture and shine in our hearts. And this we pray together in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Now I'm going to read from Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, beginning in verse 20. And I'll invite you to stand if you're able and uh, follow along silently as I read aloud from Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Then Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. May God bless this word to our hearts and understanding. You may be seated. Well, there's the, uh, on the screen the, uh, the postcard that went out in the mail to everybody, and all that junk, the suitcases and the boxes and the picnic baskets. And if, uh, you know, maybe that looks like your storage area or uh, your garage or your whatever, uh, the accumulation of things. It was interesting when that uh, mailer hit the, hit the mailbox of homes, I started getting people uh, unsolicited confessions from people about being hoarders. Uh, people would stop me uh, in the hallway of church or uh, email me and start confessing their tendencies to being hoarders. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, and then I, I tried to say to people back, you know, this business of preaching is preaching to myself and just letting you listen in every Sunday morning. Because I, I deal with the same, the same thing. Uh, I look at my office. I look at our house. I... I I'm embarrassed at the clothes in my closet, the, the stuff that's in storage in our homes that could be uh, used for good and for others, and just that, that constant accumulation of things. Especially do I feel guilty about that in a, in a world where today over one billion people on this planet, over one billion people on this planet will be living on one dollar, one dollar a day for over a billion people on this planet. And I think about all my stuff. 
Did you know that since 1970, in the United States, the average size of of a house has nearly doubled? Since 1970, the average size of a house has nearly doubled. And yet, with all of that, self-storage rental has become a booming business because we don't have room for all of our stuff in those houses that are almost twice as big. In fact, self-storage rentals in the United States rent out 2 billion square feet of space. 2 billion. We don't know that all of it's full, but we think most of it's full of stuff. That's a lot of square footage of self-storage rental. I want to tell you about a book written by a sociologist and a psychologist, Frost and Stakiki, Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things. That's the cover of the book by Stakiki and Frost, Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding and the Meaning of Things. And in the book, they try to talk to us as a sociologist and psychologist about our addiction to things and about uh, how things begin to control us and possessions begin to own us rather than we own them and, and all of the ramifications of that. They talk in the book about many case studies and one of them is the Collier brothers. You may be acquainted with this case. The Collier brothers lived in a brownstone in New York City. They were both found dead in that brownstone that was packed so full of collections of things that they almost couldn't find their bodies. A 12-room house, and they hauled out of that house 140 tons of collectibles, of TVs and radios and books and suitcases and lamps and, and things, 140 tons of stuff. The brothers died in a 12-room brownstone and their their bodies were discovered sometime after their death. And so, a fascinating study. And some of you know about the A&E reality TV series, Hoarders. Uh, And it's it's story after story after story of intervention with people who have this addiction to storing and stashing things. And it's about people trying to intervene and get them in a... in in some kind of counseling and get them in a support group and help them understand their relationship to things. Well, I could go on and on with examples, but we're not so much interested in the psychology of of this issue, although it's all tied together, as we are the spirituality of this issue this morning. And by that I mean, I want us to begin this morning and in this sermon series to think about how prosperity and possessions can actually dull our relationship with God and others. How prosperity and possessions can actually dull our appetite for God and for others. And how prosperity and possessions can actually numb us to the suffering and pain of people around us who suffer from lack. We can actually live in such comfort and with so many things insulating us that we develop a numbness toward the pain and the suffering of people who are near us. You know, we in the church have this habit uh, 
and I include myself, we have this habit of blaming secular world for all of our problems. I love the way we can always blame the secular world for how the church isn't prospering and how the gospel is anemic and not being effective in the world today. And yet, I think more times than not, the problem is in the mirror of those of us who are followers of Jesus, and it's not a problem out there. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about by showing you a quote by a man named Frederick Huntington. Here it is. It is not scientific doubt, not atheism, not agnosticism that in our land is likely to quench the light of the gospel. It is a proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity. Now, I put the name of the person who said it up there so you'd get mad at him and not at me, okay? I mean, that's strong stuff. He basically says, it's not agnosticism's fault, it's not atheism's fault, it's not, it's not secularism's fault for the anemic gospel. It is the fault of proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity. Strong words. And that brings us to our text. Jesus does the Sermon on the Plain. Now remember, this is, this is not Matthew. This isn't the Sermon on the Mount, although it's, it's similar. Matthew's sermon is on a mount. Luke's is on a plain. Matthew has only blesseds. Luke has blesseds and woes. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, blessed are the poor. And Jesus begins talking about values. And he begins talking about relationships. And you start reading this and you're saying, oh, come on now, Jesus. You are so out of step with your times. You're so out of step, Jesus, with your own culture. And Jesus, you're really out of step with our culture, 21st century Western civilization. And I'll grant you that. Jesus is out of step with our culture. But the real question is, could Jesus be right? Could Jesus be right? And of course, I think he is. He starts out with the blessed. And by the way, the word blessed means fortunate, to be envied, good for you, cheers for you. Blessed are the poor. Blessed and fortunate are the people who are hungry. Blessed and fortunate are those who weep. That's sort of upside down, isn't it? And then he starts on the woes. And woe means, uh uh-oh, wouldn't want to be you. Woe to the rich. God pity the full. God pity those who are laughing now. See, Jesus turns everything around. He doesn't look at at possessions and, and things through the lens of right now. He looks at possessions and things through the lens of the future, God's kingdom, the way things are going to be in eternity. And through the lens of the future, the way God's going to make the world eventually, Jesus says everything's different than what we thought. And so we begin to struggle. You and, you and I begin to struggle to say, what if Jesus is right? What if north is south and up is down and in is out and, and happy is sad? There's this complete convoluting, turning upside down of values and and the definition of success and the definition of having things that matter. 
And it really is sobering. I actually wish that Luke had not included this. It just would have been a whole lot easier if we just had Matthew's version. Luke, just take a break. Don't, don't put this in the text. And by the way, the location of this, of this teaching of Jesus about, about the woes and the blessings and the, and the flipped values of the north is south and up is down and all that, it's right after, in Luke's gospel, it's right after he calls the 12 disciples, verses 12 through 16 or whatever. He calls the disciples, and then it's as if he gathers them together and says, now this is what you've signed up for. You want to be a follower of mine? This is what you've signed up for. These kind of values, this is the way the society of Jesus will be living out values. And this is the kind of relationship we'll have to things. This is what you've signed up for as followers. I uh, was at a pastor's retreat recently that Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, uh, the Heartland uh, CBF, hosted for some pastors in St. Louis. And the evening was free, so we went to hear David Beckman speak at a, at a local Presbyterian church in uh, St. Louis. David Beckman is the president of Bread for the World, a marvelous organization. And uh, Beckman was doing his presentation, and he was talking about how the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings in our society, young adults, are really getting excited about the social justice implications of the gospel of Christ. They're really getting excited about living simply so that others can simply live. They're getting excited about about uh, living in a, a cleaner environment. They're getting excited about, about simplifying their lives and shedding some of the stuff uh, of previous generations. And Beckman said, he said, in one of my conferences, somebody stood up and raised their hand and said, where are these young people getting all this? And Beckman said, I answered, they're getting it from the Bible. They're getting it from Jesus. Because it's precisely what he talks about. I read uh, a couple of years ago in Sojourner's Magazine an interview with the author uh, Philip Yancey. He's written the book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and many of you have done Bible studies uh, with some of his books, a marvelous writer. And they were interviewing Philip Yancey about his life as a writer. He's a very successful writer. He's had several best-selling books, and he's become very well-off financially. And he talked about what a struggle that was for him to be well-off financially. He said, you see, my wife and I had planned to be missionaries. We'd planned to be very poor, and so we had planned our life accordingly. And he said, my life took a different turn. I'm an author, and uh, I've had to struggle with what to do with all this income. He said, I was not prepared to deal appropriately with all of this income. He said, our culture doesn't see that as a problem, but Jesus saw that as a problem. What to do with all of our stuff? What to do with all of our possessions and all of our money? And he said, so it's been a real struggle for me, and I haven't always done it right. And he reminded us that Jesus said more about possessions, especially in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said more about possessions than he did any other topic, including hell. And Yancey acknowledged what a a struggle that was. This summer on vacation, uh, we took our grandchildren uh, to the go-kart track uh, to ride the go-karts. And uh, that's always fun. Uh, And 
the children were enjoying go-karts, and a lot of grown-up children were riding the go-karts too. Have you ever noticed that? And uh, there were little children, and there were great big adult children on the track riding the go-karts. And, and uh, it was a lot of fun to watch, but it was amazing to me as I watched that, how people would try to get ahead of the, of the cart in front of them. And when they got ahead, they'd try to cut them off and stay ahead. I mean, it's a go-kart ride for crying out loud. And people would try to cut someone off to keep them from getting ahead, and one person had to be flagged down and, and called out of, the, out of that particular turn because they were being too rough and had caused an accident. And, and I, as I was reflecting on that, I wrote in my journal on vacation that it seems to me we're teaching our children that loud is good, Faster is good, and bigger is good. It seems like it's just that competitive spirit is just sort of in our culture. Even something like go-karts, speed and power and noise. And not just speed and power and noise, but more. More speed, power, and noise. More things, more money. More, bigger this, bigger that, bigger everything. And what that does is not only dulls our appetite for God, but it creates such a competitive spirit with other people that we don't even have healthy relationship with others. That's why I included in this reading, not just the reading about the blessings and the woes, but Jesus goes on and says, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Give to those who take things away from you and don't ask for it back again. Do to others as you'd have them do to you. Jesus was saying, if we're not careful, we'll run right by relationships for the sake of possessions. Jesus calls us to flip that around. He wants us to run right by possessions for the sake of relationships. And I'm not sure we always do that very well. To put relationships first, above possessions and things. See, what Jesus is doing in this Sermon on the Plain is he's he's dragging all the junk of the world out into the light of day to expose it for its emptiness. He's dragging all the world's definitions of success out from the shadows into the sunlight of God, and he's saying, take a look at how bankrupt these things are to really deliver happiness. Take a look at how these things can never really satisfy you. He's exposing them for the frauds that they are. There's nothing more depressing in all the world than getting all the stuff you think you needed and still feeling empty inside. I'm going to say that again. There is nothing in the world more depressing than getting all the stuff you thought you needed and still feeling empty inside. It's just a very hollow feeling. So I was thinking, you know, Hoarders Anonymous, maybe we need to adopt the model of the mental health field Take a page from AA, and maybe we need to find a way to once a week to get together as a support group and talk to each other about the false values of culture 
and then rehearse together the kingdom values that Jesus gave us so that we can, so that we can be liberated and, and actually become the full human beings that he called us to be. What would it be like to get together once a week for a support group to, to sort of identify the pernicious values of culture and rehearse the kingdom values that are healing and helpful. Oh, wait a minute. We do that, don't we, once a week? It's called church. It's called worship. It's called small group Bible study. We get together to rehearse kingdom values. We get together to practice being the society of Jesus, the society that claims upside-down values, the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom Jesus calls us to. Let's pray together.